1: Everyone, welcome to episode two hundred and six of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich,
0: and I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all! Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With the last show, as y'all recall, we returned to the Western Theater of the War after a long absence. We talked about how the Federal victory at Shiloh in April of eighteen sixty-two was the exclamation point on all that the Union armies had gained up until that point in the West and it also seemed to open up brand new opportunities.
1: But Department Commander Henry Halleck spent the whole month of May inching his gigantic army the 20 miles down to Corinth, a key rail junction in the northeast corner of Mississippi. At the end of May, with Halleck finally knocking on the door at Corinth, Confederate General P.G.T. Beauregard, who had taken command after Albert Sidney Johnston's death at Shiloh, withdrew from Corinth under Halleck's nose and successfully retreated 50 or so miles south to Tupelo.
0: With his capture of Corinth, Halleck was now astride the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, which was one of the Confederacy's major east-west rail lines. In the last show, we talked about how the prospect of campaigning in the Deep South presented Halleck with some daunting challenges, so he decided that rather than plunging southward after Beauregard, he would disperse his forces to consolidate the gains the Federals had made up to that point in the Upper South.
1: While leaving his most aggressive general, Ulysses S. Grant, to defend the whole area around Corinth in northern Mississippi and over to Memphis in western Tennessee, Halleck entrusted his one positive move to Don Carlos Buell, who, with about 30,000 men, was to advance eastward along the railroad to Chattanooga, repairing the railroad as he went and using it as his supply line. As we mentioned in the last episode, significant stretches of that rail line were already controlled by a federal division commanded by one of Buell's subordinates, Ormsby Mitchell. But Buell himself set a, uh, very leisurely pace, and his anxieties about his supply lines were made worse by raids by Confederate cavalry led by John Hunt Morgan and Nathan Bedford Forrest. While Buell slowly advanced eastward toward Chattanooga, Halleck was called to Washington. From the capital, Halleck had looked like a man of decision and the architect of the Union victories in the Western Theater, and so in July he was called to Washington to assume the position of General-in-Chief, which had been vacant since March. But with Halleck's departure, the period of unified Union command in the West came to an end, and Grant commanding the Army of the Tennessee, and Buell, leading the Army of the Ohio, would now operate independent of each other once again, as they had before Shiloh. In 1862, Chattanooga, Tennessee was a small, ramshackle city, really just a town of perhaps 2,000 inhabitants on the banks of the Tennessee River at the foot of Lookout Mountain. From Chattanooga, railroads ran not only west to Corinth and Memphis, but also ran northeast through the Union-sympathizing rugged and mountainous region of East Tennessee up to Virginia, and a line also ran southeast to Atlanta and the heart of Georgia. For the Federals, taking Chattanooga would be a big step toward Lincoln's long-held goal of liberating Unionist East Tennessee would seal off the most convenient line of rail communications between the Eastern and Western Confederacy and would open the door to federal penetration into Georgia.
0: The task of defending Chattanooga fell to Major General Edmund Kirby Smith, who commanded the small Confederate Army of East Tennessee. Smith's task was complicated by the fact that he also had to defend Knoxville, 100 miles to the northeast, which seemed to be threatened by a Union division under the command of Brigadier General George W. Morgan. Just in a, as an aside, but Morgan had been a West Point classmate of Kirby Smith's before dropping out because of bad grades. At any rate, Morgan's Federals had recently driven some of Smith's Confederates out of Cumberland Gap and occupied that key position, which was about 60 miles north of Knoxville.
1: Kirby Smith felt he had far too few men to defend against both Buell's advance from the west and Morgan's threat from the north. The only ray of hope for the Confederates in East Tennessee lay in the fact that Buell was advancing very slowly, partially because he was Buell, and partially because even as he was repairing the line of the Memphis and Charleston as he advanced, Confederate cavalry and rebel guerrillas were wrecking it behind him.
0: Buell's slow progress across northern Alabama toward Chattanooga gave the Confederates time to react. The passive stance of the scattered Union forces Halleck had left in northern Mississippi placed no pressure on the Confederates in that sector, and so left the rebel troops free to move to counter Buell. The Confederate
1: Army had been encamped around Tupelo, Mississippi, since its retreat from Corinth. A few weeks after reaching Tupelo, PGT Beauregard had granted himself an open-ended leave to recuperate at a southern Alabama health spa. The Civil War commanding generals were not expected to take leaves, especially without permission from Richmond, and this was the last straw for Jefferson Davis. As you guys will recall, Davis and Beauregard had been on the outs since the aftermath of First Manassas, and now Davis promptly sacked the absent Beauregard and replaced him with the Western Army's second-ranking general, Braxton Bragg.
0: It was therefore to Bragg and to the authorities in Richmond that Kirby Smith appealed for help in stopping Buell and saving Chattanooga. But Richmond had no troops to send, and at first it seemed that Bragg was equally helpless to aid Smith, since Bragg needed to keep an eye on Halleck's originally much larger force at Corinth.
1: Desperate, Smith continued his appeals for help. He urged Bragg to bring his entire army to Chattanooga, And pledged that he would be glad to serve as Bragg's subordinate in the campaign that would follow. You see, Bragg outranked Smith, but since Kirby Smith had an independent command, he wouldn't have been been required by military protocol to obey Bragg unless the two generals were actually together in the same place. So if Bragg would come to help him at Chattanooga, Smith signaled that he would be happy to serve under Bragg.
0: As the summer progressed, Bragg began to think that Smith's proposal might be a good idea. The Federals in front of Bragg had spread out in garrisons holding West Tennessee and extreme northern Mississippi. They were obviously going nowhere, as far as making any aggressive maneuvers, and so Bragg began to realize that a rapid movement by his army to Chattanooga could do much more than just save that place, because by allowing the Confederates to seize the initiative, it could shift the whole momentum of the war in the region west of the Appalachians.
1: Having determined that he would move his army to Chattanooga, Bragg decided to leave detachments behind in Mississippi to counter the two chief federal threats to that region. 16,000 men under Major General Sterling Price would stay to watch the Yankees in northern Mississippi, while another 16,000 under the command of Major General Earl Van Dorn would stand ready to counter any Union effort against Vicksburg.
0: You see, after the Union fleet commanded by David Farragut had captured New Orleans that April, he had taken his ships up the Mississippi River, captured Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and tried to take Vicksburg. He had been joined there by the Federal's river gunboat fleet, the Pooks Turtles and Timberclads, which had defeated a Confederate riverboat fleet at Memphis in June. All of that meant that now only Vicksburg remained as a Confederate strongpoint on the Mississippi River, and Van Dorn was supposed to ensure that it held out.
1: While leaving Price and Van Dorn behind, Bragg, with the rest of his force, started on what was arguably the boldest strategic move of the war thus far. While his cavalry, artillery, and supply wagons proceeded eastward across northern Alabama at a safe distance from Buell's plotting Federals, Bragg's foot soldiers would take a roundabout railroad route to their destination. The 30,000 or so Confederate infantry would board trains and ride the rails down to Mobile, Alabama, where they would transfer to a different railroad for the ride up to Chattanooga. All told, it would be a journey of some 770 miles and was the most significant use of railroads in the history of warfare up to that time.
0: In moving to join forces with Kirby Smith, Bragg seems to initially have had thoughts of using Chattanooga as a jumping-off point to move up into Middle Tennessee and reclaim that central region for the Confederacy and force Buell to act on the defensive. Bragg's target would be Nashville, which would be liberated from the Yankees.
1: Bragg also anticipated that Van Dorn and Price would unite sometime in order to take the offensive in western Tennessee and attack Grant. By attacking Grant and preventing him from going to Buell's aid, Van Dorn and Price would be supporting Bragg's own strike northward toward Nashville.
0: Bragg's infantry took six days to make the roundabout journey from Tupelo to Chattanooga. The first units arrived at their destination on July 29th, but with the cavalry, artillery, and supply wagons traveling separately, it would take time for the entire army to assemble. Bragg himself reached Chattanooga on the 30th. Kirby Smith came down from his headquarters at Knoxville, and the two generals met and discussed the upcoming campaign at a conference on July 31st that lasted into the early morning hours of August 1st.
1: Bragg and Smith had a lot to discuss. Smith went to great lengths to assure Bragg that he was willing to cooperate with him on whatever plan Bragg had come up with to seize the strategic initiative and recover lost territory. But while he said all the right things when he met with Bragg, Kirby Smith was apparently already having second thoughts about the loss of his independent command and about playing second fiddle to Braxton Bragg during any operation to retake Middle Tennessee and recapture Nashville.
0: When the two men parted ways on August 1st, after the conclusion of their conference in Chattanooga, Bragg believed that he and Smith had come to a mutual understanding as to their future course of action but Kirby Smith seems to have been less than sincere in his assurances to Bragg, since his actions afterward make clear he had set his eyes on striking northward into Kentucky, rather than cooperating with Bragg to recover Middle Tennessee.
1: Kirby Smith's uh, going rogue was still in the future, of course, when he left Chattanooga to return to Knoxville. When Smith left Chattanooga, everything seemed hunky-dory. Jefferson Davis, who had been kept well informed of, devo- of developments, was pleased that Bragg and Smith would be cooperating against Buell. The Confederate president was confident that the two commanders could defeat Buell and capture Nashville, and that happy outcome, combined with pressure from Van Dorn and Price, would force Grant to give up northern Mississippi and western Tennessee and retreat northward. The result, Davis wrote to Bragg, Would be, quote, a complete conquest over the enemy involving the liberation of Tennessee and Kentucky.
2: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th.
1: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
0: When he met with Bragg, Kirby Smith had hidden his true intentions behind assuring words and a cordial relationship, but as soon as he returned to his headquarters in Knoxville, Smith cleverly began to alter the course of events to suit himself.
1: Since Bragg's entire army would take some time to reach and ready itself at Chattanooga, it had been agreed that Bragg would forward the first two divisions to arrive to Smith. Thus strengthened, Smith would move against Cumberland Gap and retake it. After Cumberland Gap was secured, Smith would march to join up with Bragg in the thrust into Middle Tennessee. Uh, That was the plan, anyway.
0: But on August 9th, Smith told Bragg that even with the two divisions from Bragg's army, which were Bragg's best units, by the way, but Smith said that taking Cumberland Gap wouldn't be so easy after all. Morgan's Federals there were equal in numbers to Smith's force, and the Yankees had stockpiled an enormous store of supplies. Smith pointed out that even if he were to cut Morgan's line of communications, which was easy enough to do using some nearby smaller passes, Morgan could still hold out in the gap itself for a good long while. Rather than get tied down in such an operation, Smith suggested that he bypass Cumberland Gap and strike directly up into Kentucky.
1: Ambitious and impatient, Kirby Smith was already indicating that he had no intention of losing his independent command and joining forces with Bragg to clear Middle Tennessee. Bragg responded on August 10th with a confusing mixture of caution and enthusiasm. He reminded Smith that Buell's army was the biggest obstacle to a successful invasion of Kentucky, and that together they had a good chance of defeating Buell, but that if they operated separately, the entire campaign might be in peril. But Bragg didn't feel that he could force Smith to comply with their initial plan, and extraordinarily, he even promised to meet his headstrong partner up on the Ohio River,
0: The Ohio River, of course, is the northern boundary of Kentucky.
1: Exactly. Um, In any case, Kirby Smith was clearly looking to make the most of his opportunity, and he had obviously chosen Kentucky rather than Middle Tennessee as the stage upon which he would earn his glory. Bragg allowed himself to be dragged into Smith's scheme, since he seems to have become just as carried away as Kirby Smith, with a desire to strike boldly north into the bluegrass state.
0: Smith and Bragg were both bitten by the bluegrass bug in the summer of 1862, and one significant influence on their decisions seems to have been the great success of Kentuckian John Hunt Morgan, who sent back glowing reports from a recent cavalry raid into his home state. Morgan wrote confidently to Smith that quote, "the whole country can be secured and 25,000 or 30,000 men will join you at once."
1: The flow of events seemed to favor major Confederate offensive action in the summer of 1862. The string of rebel failures in the West had created an almost desperate desire among Westerners to reverse that alarming trend, and Robert E. Lee's victories in the Seven Days Battles revived the spirits of Easterners. Jefferson Davis received a great deal of pressure and encouragement to push Confederate armies northward that summer, and everyone expected great, spectacular gains by Southern arms.
0: The Confederate congressional delegation from Kentucky consistently implored Jefferson Davis to free their home state. Those bluegrass politicians urged Davis to send as many Kentucky officers as possible with Bragg to facilitate recruiting there. Enthusiastic supporters of the invasion predicted 40,000 men could be signed up for the Confederate Army in Kentucky since the population, they said, was tired of squirming under the, quote, oppression and tyranny of the Lincoln authorities. Although
1: Kentucky had a star on the Confederate flag, the bluegrass state's political status in the Confederacy was anything but simple since the slave-holding border state never formally seceded from the Union. While Governor Beriah McGoffin was pro-Southern, the state legislature was pro-Northern. As a result, McGoffin declared Kentucky neutral at the start of the Civil War. That policy broke down in September 1861, however, when the Confederates blundered by making the first military move into the state, and as a result, Kentucky's fence-sitting days were finally over, and she would stay in the Union.
0: In November, those Kentuckians who could not accept that outcome held a meeting in Russellville, west of Bowling Green, and well within Confederate lines. This meeting denied the legitimacy of the state government up in the capital of Frankfurt and voted George W. Johnson, one of the meeting's organizers, as their new governor. Johnson immediately applied to Richmond for the Bluegrass State's admission to the Confederacy, which was granted on December 10th.
1: Johnson established his headquarters at Bowling Green and then retreated from Kentucky with Albert Sidney Johnston after the fall of Forts Henry and Donelson. Johnson served as a volunteer aide for fellow Kentuckian and Confederate General John C. Breckinridge, and at Shiloh he fought in the ranks of the Fourth Kentucky. On the second day of fighting there, Johnson was hit twice and left on the field when the rebels retreated. A federal officer, Brigadier General Alexander McDowell McCook, who had been a pre-war acquaintance of Johnson's, found him and saw to his care, but Johnson died a few days later.
0: Johnson's replacement was Richard C. Hawes, who was also a refugee. Hawes aggressively lobbied Jefferson Davis for Kentucky's liberation. Davis needed little persuading. The Confederate president, who was acting as his own general-in-chief, tried to coordinate the movements of Bragg and Smith in the West with Robert E. Lee in the East, but that was easier said than done.
1: Lee sent a letter to Davis approving of the movement into Kentucky by Smith and Bragg, noting that, quote, it would produce a good effect, end quote. But Lee couldn't wait until the western generals moved to begin his own offensive. Lee was planning a strike north from the Richmond area against John Pope by early August. Lee had to strike quickly before McClellan withdrew from the peninsula and linked up with Pope. There was no way, though, that Bragg or Smith could move that quickly, so there would be only a loose coordination of effort between the Confederate offensives that summer in the east and west.
0: And so by the middle of August 1862, the entire strategic picture in the Western theater of the war was on the verge of a dramatic turnaround. The string of federal successes from Forts Henry and Donelson to Corinth was long since over, and the Confederates were on the move.
1: The rebels were beginning the campaign to invade Kentucky with a divided command structure and with strategic goals that seemed to change on a weekly basis and supplies would be a constant problem for them. But the Confederate soldiers were eager for action, keen to strike at the Yankees, and they started out on the campaign with enthusiasm.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is... Braxton Bragg, The Most Hated Man of the Confederacy by Earl J. Hess. Uh,
1: As far as the subtitle of this biography, uh, well, spoiler alert, but yeah, Bragg wasn't very well loved in his own time, and historians have continued to pile on down through the years but here huss's treatment in this biography offers a more balanced view of bragg as a man and as an officer so it's well worth checking out
0: don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.org also at the website you can find links to the show's facebook page and twitter feed Thanks to everyone who's liked us on Facebook lately and followed us on Twitter. That means a lot.
1: Yep. Uh, And then as we wrap up this show, we'd like to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Jared, Mike, Brian W., Matthew, and Brian D. Thanks, guys.
0: And we'd also like to thank Jared for his very generous donation and for his wonderful note, letting us know that he and his wife, Lacey, are loyal listeners.
1: So a special shout out to Jared and Lacey. We always enjoy hearing about husbands and wives who listen to the podcast, since obviously the show is a team effort from this husband and wife.
0: Exactly. Anyway, thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, A History Podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we head closer to the Battle of Perryville. But until then, take care.
1: Thanks, everyone.
0: Bye.